the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back to Simple Truth Moments. We are continuing with a series uh, of a book called The Kingdom by Don Enavolson. Um The Kingdom from C- Creation to Millennium. And uh, we f- last week finished the chapter on the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom. And what we concluded was both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ of Nazareth is by his, known by his Jewish name as Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, uh, announced uh, a kingdom. It was a restoration process. It was a restoration of God's order back into a w- fallen world post chapter 13 of Genesis when the world was invaded by uh, rebellious angelic hordes. Uh, and man, unfortunately, got uh, hoodwinked to hand over his original dominion authority over to the invading horde of rebellious angels, all through deceit, all through deception. And um, God is now in a process post-announcement of John the Baptist in uh, the early chapters of Luke and Yeshua himself, Jesus himself, announcing the arrival of something. And we, that's what we studied last week. So I encourage you to go back to um, to KPRZ podcasts. All of the shows that we are doing are uh, archived there. Uh, but enough to say, in summary of the f- following week so we can transition into this week, is that the kingdom is something that is restored. It is brought back. In other words, there was an original blueprint plan of God the Father, in Genesis 1 and 2. And very early in the game, by Genesis 3, everything has blown up. And the whole Bible is a story about a family reunification. We have to think about what did we lose in the garden. What we lost in the garden was not heaven. We had heaven on earth because the presence of God was with Adam and Eve, and they were given virtual 
uh, complete authority to run this place. And earth was made for man. It wasn't made for fallen angels. But yet the fallen angels thought that God's original plan to have man in charge of earth was uh, folly. It was dumb. It just didn't make any sense to the fallen angels because they consider themselves to be greater and uh, more powerful than human dust balls. They, they still have a problem with that, obviously, and that same contention between God and the fallen angels, the drama that we see in Job uh, chapters 1 and 2 and 3, um, is still continuing to this day. Interestingly enough, Job is the oldest book of the Bible. And um, it begins about a, with a conversation between Father God and a fallen angel uh, about who is this man, who's this dustball called Job. Isn't it interesting? 42 chapters of the Bible, <laughs> of the book of Job, is dedicated to this drama of what is the purpose of man? What's he, what's he all about? And why are these angels, these fallen angels, and even the loyal angels, it says in Peter, these are the things in which the angels long to look. It's uh, it's almost as if they're they can't get into the World Series game and uh, they're on the fence looking out, so they're going through the knot holes or they're looking over the top of the fence to say, "Whoa, what's the score? And and who's up? And and what are the you know what's the contention here?" And that's the whole flavor of the story of Job. Um, Satan is trying to prove God wrong. He's trying to say Father God's decision to put man in charge was was dumb. It it was stupid. It didn't make sense. And here we are today with a huge deception of of the a, a Hebrew book. The Bible is written by 40 authors, 39 of whom were all Jews. They were Hebrew. They weren't Greeks. They weren't Romans. They weren't Western civilization folks. They were Middle Easterners. They were Semites from the Middle East. And you cannot study or comprehend a book until you know its culture, until you know its history, until you know more about its language, the method of its communication. And... I won't go into this now, but we basically have taken a circular, cyclical story, a a Middle Eastern story, and turned it into a straight-line Greek um, line, a straight line. How How do you interpret a circle by using a straight line? Does that make sense? Does that make any sense at all? But that's what we've been trying to do for literally thousands of years. And so the only way we could do it is to say, well, God didn't, uh, really mean it when he put man in charge of the earth. Really? Yeah, yeah, he came up with plan B or plan C or plan D. The, the plan is just to forget about the earth. Write it off. It's a loss. Who cares? The perfection's all up in the, in the ethos, in the ethereal world, up into the never-never the land. And that's not the gospel that John the Baptist announced it's called the gospel of the kingdom. If we leave off those last three words of the kingdom, which deals with kingship, which deals with rulership, we're not going to have a clue 
of what the message of the kingdom is about at all. We're not going to understand it. So on this chapter today, this is called, God is now restoring his likeness to man. Don't forget in the original uh, first two chapters of Genesis, well, actually Genesis 1, it says mankind was made in God's image and his likeness. Now, if we lost our purpose for why we were even here to rule and reign the earth, to image God, to have the likeness of God by saying we are connected to him intimately, we lost that purpose in chapter 3 of Genesis. Everything blew up. Man was thrown, thrown out of the garden away from the presence of God. Well, by definition, if you use John 17, 3, what's life mean? What's eternal life mean? It says very clearly, check it out, John 17, 3. It's, it says, and this is eternal life. This is Jesus talking the night before he dies to his apostles. And he says that you may know God, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Eternal life is a relational interaction between God and his created children. That's eternal life. And we've been all taught as Greeks, as Westerners, as, as Romans, as um, linear thinkers, that eternal life is transportational. It's going from point A over to point B. There's not a single verse in either the Old Testament nor the New that says that. Here's another put-on-your-seatbelt moment. I taught this uh, recently the other day uh, in class. I'm over at Tree of Life teaching about um, this current book on Tuesday evenings if you want to join us uh, beginning again on November 29th. Um, I told the class, you know, there's not one verse in the Bible that says the purpose for Yeshua, for Jesus coming to the earth. The reason he came to the earth is so when I die, I get to go to heaven. That may seem shocking. I remember I challenged a young man who, who really is, knows his Bible quite well, and I said, where does it say that? I'm just curious. He says, well, it's all over the place. I said, okay, cool. Show me one. If it's all over the place, there should be several verses that say it, but just show me one. He says, of course. And then you could see his wheels turning. And it was the wheels as they were turning, the eyeballs were coming up with zeros, negatives. And he realized, gosh, maybe that's not the reason Yeshua came to earth. Maybe that's not the purpose he came to earth. So one of the reasons uh, he came to earth was to restore everything that was taken from us in the deception of the spiritual rebellion that invaded the material earth. Understand the rebellion didn't begin here. It was a problem that God had on his hands before we were here. It came down from heavens to earth. Read Isaiah 14, check out Ezekiel 28 and see where the rebellion began. It didn't begin with us. It got, unfortunately, it overcame us. It involved us later, as we see in chapter 3 of Genesis. But it didn't start with us. And so 
the restorational message of the gospel of the kingdom is to restore everything that was in Father God's original blueprint. We were made in God's likeness, and we were supposed to reflect his image to, as our purpose to the world. And Jesus said, hey, I've come to restore the kingdom to Israel. Well, what does that look like? So let's, this chapter deals with a restorational focus. The first thing that, that we're going to talk about, how do we get back into God's likeness? Because that's one of the first things when they talk about how we're going to make man. They said we're going to make man in our image and in our likeness. But notice that it says they. It didn't say it's singular. We can talk about that in another uh, moment. Um, that comes from the, the reference, the Jewish reference to God in this Elohim. And so in restored likeness, we have to ascertain how is this going to happen? What is this going to look like? What, what's, gonna, what's it going to involve? Is it just going to, do I have to wait until I die and then go to a place and that's where the likeness of God is going to be restored to me? Actually, no. That's why we have the Jewish Testament. That's why we have the Tanakh. The Tanakh is a word that refers to the Jewish um, component of the Bible in the sense of, we call it the Old Testament. I don't like that reference. It's the Jewish Testament. The whole book is the Jewish Testament, but we're talking about pre-arrival of Jesus Christ, pre-arrival of the Messiah, of the Jewish Messiah. So basically, the chapter 12 starts out with, it's called Restored Likeness. And, and let's just review real quick. What we indicated in our earlier teachings was likeness happens as a vertical experience with God doing a download into the human creation, into us as his human children, his likeness. I mean, that's what happened in the first two chapters of Genesis, if you wanted to see a prototype of what it looked like before the fall. And so picture a vertical download. And as we worship God, many times if you're in a church, you'll notice that people, uh, they're their chin and their nose and their eyes go up to the ceiling and their and their arms are opened and their hands are turned upward and they're and they're praising God they're worshiping God they're inviting God to come in to the not just the building but into themselves as God's building and that's the whole vertical experience you can see that uh, where there's God's presence in, in uh, church worship services, some more than others, admittedly. Um, but Moses came down from Sinai with more than just stone tablets. Um, the law defined the limitation of man's dominion. So now we're talking restoration now. Okay, Is man going to have complete um, ability to say, hey, I can do anything I want independent from God. And, and, the, and the short answer is no. <laughs> That's what got you in trouble um, in the first place because you didn't understand your original limitations. The original limitations was trust God because he's smarter than you are. He has more experience than you. And by the way, he created you because he's God and you are not. Um, and so the limitation was 
don't go over to the law, uh, I mean, sorry, to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we've talked about that in previous shows. That was violated. So when the Jews are about to leave uh, Egypt to be rescued, because you remember what we talked about last week, Luke chapter 1 with the prophecy of Zacharias and Luke chapter 4 with Yeshua, with Jesus announcing the arrival of the kingdom, it was talking all about, it didn't talk about salvation to go from point A to point B. Not at all. This kingdom, this rule of God, this government of God, read Isaiah 9, it talks about the Messiah showing up with the government on his shoulders. Kingdom is not necessarily a place. In fact, more often than not, it refers to the domain of the king. The, the king. It's the law. It is the government. And so what we had here is a process that, I'll just read it from, I, I think this chapter pretty much explains it. Moses came down from the mountain with more than just the two stone tablets. The law defined the limitations of man's dominion, but it did nothing to address the problem of man's separation from God. The law didn't address that. Because let's stop for a second. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. What did man lose? He lost his um, connection with God. And again, if eternal life is connection, knowing God, basically Adam and Eve from that point forward did not have the presence of eternal life in them. They were separated physically from God. They were put out of the garden. They couldn't come back in. And that's where, God, that's where uh, Father God was. And so the law as given to Moses on Sinai didn't address the problem of man's separation from God and his later estrangement from his original purpose. What was man's original purpose? It was to take on God's likeness and then image it out horizontally. In other words, it's a, it's a different experience from the vertical download from Father God down to us, in us. And then it was to be delivered horizontally in the image of God. It was like to be a mirror reflection, if you will. And so that was our purpose. And we lost that when, when the fall occurred. So we lost our connection with God, which means we were walking dead people because we'd have no eternal life. And second of all, we had no clue why we're even here. We lost our purpose. So a restorer, um, a restoration of God's original blueprint required something more than just a set of rules for life, meaning the Ten Commandments that was given to the Jews. The restoration required a reconnection. Listen to this. It required a reconnection to the source of life. Well, who or what is the source of life? Well, we again, we know, John seventeen three, eternal life is that they may know you, Father, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. That's a present moment experience of life, knowing, not knowing about in your brain, knowing relationally in your heart. Big difference, huge difference. 
for, for this reconnection to the source of life to take place, God provided the blueprint in a specialized tent called the tabernacle, which we see for the 40-year journey between leaving Egypt and going over to the promised land. The tabernacle would be the, the item which would demonstrate in a symbolic form the journey or the road or the path back to the presence of God. Okay? So people who say the Jewish Old Testament is not germane to anything that's important, sorry, it's actually spelling out how do we get back that which we lost. You know, when, it's funny, when you talk about the word, word restoration, restoration means to bring something back to what it was earlier. Well, after chapter 3, um, everything blows up, and so Jesus shows up, announced by John the Baptist, to say, no, he's restoring the kingdom. The government of God is coming back, and the p- purpose of man is going to be given back to man. So this, I'm going to read from the book here. Even before that moment on Sinai, the first step in the process had already demonstrated, had been demonstrated in the dramatic night of the Exodus. The final blow to Pharaoh's hold on the people of Israel came along with the tenth plague and an event that absolutely devastated Egypt, almost beyond recovery. God told Moses, quote, about midnight, this is out of Exodus 11, uh, 4 through 5, verses 4 through 5, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now, what are we talking about? This restoration of the kingdom is a life-death comparison. We're not talking about heaven-hell. Is there a heaven? Of course. Is there a hell? Of course. But it's not a a hell-heaven comparison. It is a life-and-death contrast. So here was the choice that the Israelites who lived in Goshen had to make that night. For those who would obey God, in other words, there's going to be a process on how you be delivered from death that night. We're leading up to the Passover. You can see it here. For those who would obey God, there would be a protection against this 10th plague, this death of the firstborn in Egypt. Every family was to select a spotless lamb to be killed and eaten on that fatal night. Blood from the lamb was to be placed on all of the sides of the doorframe of, of each dwelling in Goshen. That's out of Exodus 12, verse 7. Then they were to stay indoors throughout the night, eating the lamb that had been sacrificed. You can see the symbolism here of when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time in the early chapters um, of the Gospels, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we've been delivered from death. And this picture of what happened on that on that sober night is, well, makes the point very clearly. During the night, God would pass through the land of Egypt, killing every firstborn in every house, both men and animals. But the blood would, re- but the blood or the appearance of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the Hebrews in the land of Goshen would cause a different response from God. Okay, so this is important for us to understand. If you want to explain the gospel of what, what uh, the, uh, the whole experience of accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, great, great use for uh, evangelism. Exodus twelve thirteen. 
uh, it says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see, notice, notice this is God speaking in the first person. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Again, that's out of Exodus twelve thirteen. So there was another entity. I don't want to go into this too much, but there was an angel uh, involved in this Passover. It was actually um, uh, part of the process of that 10th plague, and uh, that angel was referred to as the destroyer. And, and that's um, out of Exodus twelve twenty three. I'm not going to go into that too much, but basically Passover is was God's reaction to seeing the blood of the innocent lamb, the lamb without spot, the lamb without, it was perfect in every way. And we can see this symbolism. God's reaction to seeing that blood caused him to basically make that angel pass over and to not execute that tense plague of death. Um, Passover, if you look at the origin, origin of the Hebrew word, kind of means a um, is to have a fluttering effect, almost like a bird, a mother mother bird fluttering over the nest, and the effect of it is to spare or to protect. And so that's what we see in Jeremiah. I'm sorry, in Isaiah 31 verse five, it describes a bird that hovers overhead to protect or to spare. It's young. And this is, this is the uh, picture that was portrayed in Exodus. When God saw the blood on the doorpost of a home, he hovered over it in such a way that the destroying angel could not enter and would not be able to execute that 10th plague. We're going to take this up. Um, we're going to go further on the restoration of God's likeness, and we will see you on the other side of the break. God bless. Welcome back. We are taking this next chapter, referring to restored likeness. How does God restore the likeness of God back to his people through Yeshua, through the Messiah who who came to restore the kingdom, not to transport us away from our inheritance, but to actually bring God's government back in a restorative way to say the first two chapters of Genesis were perfect before the fall. So we were talking about the effect of Passover that um, the Hebrews who obeyed God's instruction and symbolically took this perfect lamb without blemish and took, uh, they sacrificed the lamb and then they took the blood and they put it on the doorposts of the house so that um, that blood, when viewed by God, uh, would create the God to prevent the so-called destroying angel from taking any lives in Goshen of the Hebrew family, Hebrew nation. So I'm reading from the book here. Port- Passover portrays the sacrifice of a lamb for the purpose of protecting 
the follower of God. Now notice what he's getting protected from. From the death that would otherwise naturally come to his home. So this whole gospel story is much more of a life-death contrast, life-death comparison than heaven-hell. I'm not saying heaven-hell is, <laughs> heaven and hell aren't germane and they of course exist, but we need to start talking in terms of what the kingdom the kingdom of God refers to. Um, look how many times life is compared with the opposite, which is death. When talking about what deliverance is, what salvation is, it's talking about rescuing us from a consequence that, and of course, in the, unfortunately, we are all sinners, and in the sin uh, situation, we all deserve death. That's what Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall die. I believe that's Ezekiel 18. Uh, so that's cause and effect. That's the law of, of spiritual physics, okay? And uh, that's universal. Uh, it applies to everybody, unless you have something along the line of what we're seeing in this Passover story. So, we have a rescuing of lives from, of Hebrews who do not lose their firstborn in their house because of the fact that they obeyed God. Their obedience delivered them from death. Okay? We're going to be starting to make a pattern here. Their obedience delivered them from death. Reading back in the book now. But this was only the first step in this process of deliverance. The Hebrew people still had to go out on the next day and they had to walk away from the culture of Egypt where they had been for 430 years. They had to walk away from the culture because there was a bigger plan than just delivering them in the, as a first step from death that night. The whole process was to follow up and carry out the plan of God of restoration of every element of his kingdom. So the Jews were, in a sense, on the next day, they were restored to life, but the problem was they were still no closer to the promised land. That restoration of the, of the promised land, which was, again, it was a covenant made between Father God and three Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice it, they all involved getting land from a father. In other words, what's our inheritance? Is our inheritance heaven? Or is our inheritance, as it says in Genesis 1 and 2, this earth, the land? If we think like Greeks, we're, <laughs> we're going in the wrong direction. We completely miss the point. So, the Hebrews, the night after Passover, were in a sense restored to life, but they had to still set out on that journey by leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. That process required a journey through the wilderness that incorporated several things to rebuild a relationship. We lost our relationship with God, with Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. 
They were separated from his presence. So this journey through a wilderness is going to incorporate learning how to, again, trust God. How do you form a relationship with a person? I mean, you have all kinds of different people you know. Some of them are just strangers, or some are acquaintances, or some are semi-friends, or some are closer friends. Then they're the relatives you have. But but God's saying, I'm your father. Look, read Genesis 1 and 2. I <laughs> created you. But you have to learn how to trust me. Adam and Eve didn't trust me. They didn't trust me. They listened to the deception of a fallen angel talking through a serpent that said, I wasn't, I as Father God wasn't worthy of trust. So since you didn't trust me, unfortunately, the law of cause and effect of reaping what you sow, um, it's a spiritual law, took its, took its, um, its course. So a journey through the wilderness that's going to take time is going to build something called trust because you can't go out there and, as you did in Goshen, you know, uh, have your leeks and your garlic because you have the Nile River and there's, there's water there and so you're going to eke out a living. Um, no, you're going to be taken to a desolate place. But I, as your father... You're going to learn to trust me because I'm going to provide for you. And we know the story there of, of the daily manna. And I'm going to protect you. And you're going to learn how to trust me over and over because of the repetitious faithfulness, trustworthiness that you're going to see as we develop this relationship as you live it out. Another thing, you need to begin to think like victors rather than the slaves you've been for the last 400 years, 400 plus years when you lived under uh, Pharaoh. You need to completely change your orientation of how you view things. You need to know that I will give you the victory over the enemies that you're going to encounter on this journey. And lastly, you're going to learn to obedient, be, be obedient to God not only as your father, but as your king. Now, none of that would happen, though, until the initial sacrifice of the lamb had been made. Now, when we shift gears over into the New Testament, the Passover sacrifice became associated with the person of Jesus. John the Baptist first identified Jesus by that title. In John one twenty nine, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he cried out to those who were with him. Uh, Paul makes that same connection in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, 7. But this was the moment that most Christians associate with salvation. It's the act of being saved or being born again as when you accept Jesus as your personal Savior. But as much as evangelicals had given priority to this moment, to the extent of portraying this moment as the end goal, the last goal of evangelism, it should be noted that Yeshua, Jesus, never, ever thought of it that way. The emphasis of Jesus was not on the initial redemption, but rather 
on the reason for the redemption. I'm going to say that again. The emphasis of Jesus, of Yeshua, was not on the initial redemption. He didn't, that's not what he had in mind. He had, rather on his mind, the reason for the redemption. Being born again, when the, when the uh, Hebrews came out of Egypt, and we know the whole story about the Red Sea, but they came up on the other side alive. They were still alive. And all of the pursuing enemy was drowned. Being born again for them was an entry point to the kingdom. It was the beginning. I mean, they're looking at saying, well, this isn't the promised land as they're looking at the, the, uh, the Sinai desert there. So being born again was a beginning point. And that's how Jesus explained it to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Nicodemus couldn't understand this whole, what do you mean I have to be born again i've already been born in my mother and and yeshua jesus is trying to explain to him hey you got to be born not only of water but of the spirit and the way it was explained to nicodemus was in essence if you don't experience this new spiritual birth of being born again you're not even going to see the kingdom you won't even see it. You're going to miss it totally. So what was the goal of beginning this experience of deliverance from death and being born again? Deliverance of death doesn't mean I get to go to heaven and not hell. That's not what it's talking about. It's deliverance from death is I'm no longer separated from my father God. And I'm now going to be reconnected with him. And not just reconnected, I'm going to be intimately reconnected with him. And that's eternal life, John 17, 3. We've, you know, we said it over and over. But again, we're talking things that we're trying to get back to the basics of a Hebrew story, not a, not a Greek um, really um, perversion of the, of the Hebrew story. So Yeshua, as the Jewish Messiah, is saying, hey, the goal was kingdom life. Well, what, is, what do you mean kingdom life? Well, with God acting and being king and human beings obeying the original protocols, the original designs by which man was created. Well, what do you mean by that? Man was to have God's likeness. Man was to have to be, to be in God's image. That was the design protocol. That was the purpose of man. Not to be get on a plane and fly off this earth and go and live as a spirit forever in heaven. I believe in heaven. I want to go to heaven when I die. I don't hate heaven. Some people say, why do you hate heaven? I don't hate heaven. I love heaven. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to stay there, though, because this story is a circular story. We're supposed to come back to earth to rule and reign with Yeshua, with Jesus, as kings and priests. Check out uh, Revelations um, 5 verse 5, it's all over the place. Revelations um, 20, we're going to rule and reign with with, uh, Yeshua for a thousand years. We're coming back here. But the goal of kingdom life with God as king and father, and we human beings obeying God as our king, God as our father, obeying the design protocols by which we were created, 
it would take a lifetime of growth and learning. This is not add water and shake. It's not. It takes a lifetime of growth and learning. That's why that journey took 40 years. Because you don't learn to trust with one dealing with one person. Okay, you learn to trust people over a series of experiences with that individual over time. So it would take a lifetime of growth and learning, which would start with the initial acceptance, the beginning of the journey, not the end. The beginning of the journey is accepting the sacrifice of Messiah as a bridge, the death of Messiah as the Lamb of God, as a bridge bringing you, the separated child, back to reconnecting with your father. We're going to see that the father was the goal of of this whole kingdom life to begin with. So, the Passover lamb was desperately important, but the night of Passover was to be a signal, a signal for setting out on this journey into new life. What do you mean by life? Again, kingdom life, getting to know God deeply. They had to reach the mountain of Sinai and then submit to the likeness of God, not just to reconnect with him, but Sinai was going to be a means for standing before him. They're going to learn how to, because they don't forget, they haven't been with God for 430 years, but the means of standing before God and taking on his character that needed to be imaged to the world. Let me give you an example. What did Moses look like when he came down from that mountain after spending all that time up there? What did the Hebrews ask him to do? He was glowing. It was almost like a transfiguration. He was so full of God, so full of his likeness that they said, hey, would you please put a veil over your your face because we can't take the intensity of this likeness of God being imaged out to us. God gave the law of Sinai to Moses as an educational tool that would explain or define the parameters of man's authority. That's what it says in Galatians 3.24. But contrary to the understanding of most people, the law of Sinai also, well, actually, I'll maybe put it this way. The law was only a part of what Moses received on that mountain. And arguably was not even the most important part. The more important part was Moses receiving the concept, the blueprint of this tabernacle, the tabernacle of Moses. It's called the, the tent of Moses. And the other, other references say the tabernacle of Moses and the sacrificial system as a pattern that would allow or provide man with a reentry into intimate fellowship. Okay, you ready for this? After he had been born again. And the reference here is uh, Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may, listen, I may dwell in their midst. We're talking about living in. Okay? We're talking about indwelling. And let's see here. The law was important to define our limitations of dominion 
But in spite of the unbalanced attention given to the law in both the history of Christianity and Judaism, the tabernacle was actually more relevant. It was more, actually, it was more practical, and it was more effective. The tabernacle, the construct of the tabernacle, and by the way, you're talking about 15 chapters of the specifics, of the details, of the, of the meaning of why this construction of a tabernacle is so critical, so vital. You see it mentioned in the beginning of um, Exodus 25. Guess what? It goes all the way over from Exodus 25 to Exodus 40. So 15 chapters is given to this. And the, but the tabernacle's job was to show the way back. Are you ready for this? For man's divine original purpose. I'll say it again. The tabernacle was to show the way back to man's original divine reason for his purpose. So, um, it goes, this chapter goes into a long explanation of um, how the layout of the, t- of the tabernacle. I'm just going to talk about the furnishings. There, there are seven furnishings of the tabernacle. I mean, you could do a whole year study on the, on the construction of the tabernacle and all of its um, detail. But I just want to focus. Um, you can see a pattern. This is a symbolic pattern of, of coming from not knowing God to intimately restoring your relationship, not only with God, but in God. Don't forget, God doesn't want to just live with us. He wants to live in us. And that's the message of of the um, New Covenant of the New Testament. Don't believe me? Check, check, check out John chapter 14, John 15, John 16, John 17. All four of those Gospels will talk about God indwelling man and man indwelling God. It's over and over and over again. Um, those four chapters are amazing. So, the, so the, uh, there are seven furnishings um, in the um, tabernacle. And um, is there an outer courtyard, which, is, which has no roof over it? Uh, there's a fence all around the tabernacle. Um, and there are access points for Moses and for Aaron, for the Levite, the priests. Um, and so as you're almost looking down an aerial view, you see that there's an open area which has the first two furnishings. And the first one's called the Altar of Burnt Offering. And that's where all of the animal sacrifices for asking for forgiveness. I mean, there were several different sacrifices, but the the main one was um, to ask for forgiveness of sin so that you could start this approach to go um, approach God. You can't approach God when there's sin, knowing sin, and think that God's going to show up. You've got to you've got to go through a purging process, and it begins with repentance. And so this altar of burnt offering was made out of bronze, and it was the most prominent um, uh, large um, part of the furnishing. There, it's the first item you you see when you walk in, and and so of course that's symbolic of what the cross was later going to be, that Jesus was the ultimate perfect sacrifice. Which, what was the point? The reason Yeshua died, the reason Jesus died, was to atone for our sins so that we could approach Father God, so that we could get reconnected with our Abba, with our Daddy, with our Papa, with our Avinu, our Father, 
Av in, is the Jewish word for father. The second furnishing, also still not under roof, um, outside is the bronze laver where the washing took place. And um, I believe there's a reference in Ephesians that says we are to wash ourselves by the washing and the word. But it was also made out of bronze. Bronze is symbolic of, of judgment, of sin. And of course, um, when we first come to the cross, that's the altar of burnt offering. But what do we do afterwards? We oftentimes take the next step, which is to involve water. And you see that in water baptism. So you can see the correspond. You can see the corresponding um, uh, New Testament um, experiences. Um, looking at these symbols, um, I taught a course in Mexico uh, for boy, goodness, it was four and a half years, and um, one of the courses was called the Four Great Types of Redemption. Types means basically symbols or shadows. So there's a lot of things that happen in the Tanakh in the Old Testament that will sh- that show us journeys or pathways um, for reconnecting back to God. So those are the first two. Uh, when the first part where you get to where there's an actual roof covering, there are th- um, three more um, furnishings, and um, those are pretty much representative of the progress that people make as their journey gets more mature and you start to get closer to God. So when you come into this um, first covered over area, it's called the holy place. And there are three furnishings there. And the first one that you see to the right is to the uh, table of showbread. Well, um, that we can see what, how did Jesus describe himself? I am the what? I am the bread of life. Okay, so what you, you consume the bread. That bread is to give you life. It's to give you spiritual nutrition. It's to, it's to give you the uh, energy, the divine energy to, to sustain and go on. Um, the uh, fourth furnishing, if you look to the left of the, uh, again, we're in the holy place now for the first time, is the menorah or the, what they call the lampstand. And um, by the way, the table of showbread um, was basically made with uh, wood and gold together. Wood represents man, gold represents divinity, and we can see wood and gold mixed together is a good picture of of the divinity of Christ. But Jesus was also a son of man. So he's very God of very God, yes, but he's also a very man of very man. The lampstand, on the other hand, is pure gold, and that lights up. That's the only light in the holy place because you're under roof. And so that's the next step going back towards uh, Father God. That that represents um, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is pure gold. There's no wood mixed in on, on this at all. But the Holy Spirit lights up dark places. It is the source of our divine understanding, our discernment, our wisdom, what to do, what to think, how, how we do things, and all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all of the works of the Holy Spirit. And then the fifth one is the altar of incense, where we are to learn a new intense prayer life if we want to go through the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. We offer up ourselves in a lifetime of prayer. Paul said, uh, I, f- I believe it was in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, uh, it talks about um, don't ever stop praying. Pray without ceasing. So this is a communion, a communication, a talking with God, getting to know God. And that's how you, when you spend time with somebody, you get to know them. 
and you ask them questions, you listen to them, you talk back, you share your emotions, etc. You're developing a relationship. Lastly, I'll just end on this real quick. We're going to go to the most holy place. We go through the curtain, uh, the veil, if you will. Jesus, when he died, that curtain tore apart, and we now have access to the most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant, again, wood and gold together. That's Yeshua, three things in the Ark. Resurrection life, which is the the rod of Aaron, which came to to bud later. Um, the uh, the the Ten Commandments are were in there, and also um, I can't remember the third one right now. But we got to wrap it up anyway. The mercy seat's over the top. That's where the Father is, and that's why Jesus died, so that we can get reconnected and restored. We'll carry on with this next week, and we'll wrap this up so that you can understand the symbolism of this reconnecting process to restored likeness. See you next week. God bless. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His simple truth moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.